All right, welcome to the Ball Rock Pill podcast where we talk hoops and basketball success. Um, I'm your host, Coach Karan Godwin, all-time leading scorer, or former all-time leading scorer, University of North Florida. Uh, my record was actually broken. Uh, founder of BallHogGloves.com. My co-host, Stephen Bardo, a former NBA player, uh, basketball analyst for Fox Sports. And we have Myson Jones, uh, founder of Hoops Institute. Um, guys, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, today we're talking about, you know, some of the adversities you have, may have had that, that made you guys the men you are today through the game of basketball. Uh, uh, Steven, uh, give, give me something that was hard for you, a challenging time during your life that you can share with the audience. Well, I was able to play with three different teams in the NBA, but what most people don't realize is that between uh, free agent camp, summer league, and veterans camp, I was cut waived or released 16 times from the NBA. I'm going to repeat that. 16 times I went to camp or went somewhere, was looking for the next opportunity, trying to stick with the team, and was told no 16 times. And so, um, you know, that's really uh, fortified me in business to know that um, you got to get through a lot of no's to get to that one yes. So I've, I've, I've had quite a bit of uh, – Doors slammed in my face in, in, in terms of trying to play in the NBA. And it really, uh, I wouldn't trade any of those experiences at all. Definitely. And Mason, I recently saw on one of your Instagram posts that you actually sought out there a sports um, psychologist. Can you tell us about that experience and what, what brought you to that? I will. Probably wasn't as tough as 16 cuts from, from, from the league, from a dream. But <laughs> I, I had my first practice as a freshman on the varsity team. And a guy, that I, neighborhood guy, I always looked up to and always battled against. I think everybody always had that neighborhood guy. He was being a practice All-American. And for people who don't know what that is, a practice All-American is a guy who knows the play but doesn't let you go through the play. Mm. So as I'm messing up countless times, 10, 20 times, I got my teammates cussing at me, yelling at me mad, coach wondering why this kid is even here, did I make the wrong decision? So I end up tearing up, crying, guys laughing at me. And – Looking back at it, it might be kind of funny, but it was a traumatic experience as a freshman. So I reached out to the sports psychologist to ask how to bounce back from that that instance that I had for my first varsity basketball practice. And what are some of the things you learned from the sports psychologist? Like, did you walk us through uh, some of the things and exercises he may have um, um, had you do? Yeah, first, Dr. Alan Goldberg is the man's name. He great. He didn't have to email me back. I'm sure he had tons of emails, but he, he responded. I wish I still had the email, but what I remember him saying is failure, failure that failure is feedback. And mm -hmm. he, he kind of dug into the kind of athlete while those athletes were doing what they did because they saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And it's weird, it's weird saying that, but I can see it now. But the failure was feedback is one thing he said, but also to, to focus on what was important at the moment. If I'm focusing and concentrating on what's going on in the moment, then I, I don't worry about the coaches' comments, the athletes' comments, the snickering. I'm only focused on what I'm doing, and that's how I can have peak performance no matter what's going on. Now, now Stephen Barter, I know that you played at a high level. Uh, obviously, you know, Final Four team, and uh, you were there as a, as a freshman, I believe, starting. Did you start as a freshman? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, what are some of the, the mental hurdles that you may have had to get over during that time? I know it's tough to, to come into a Big Ten school as a freshman and, and lead, you know, players that are older than you. If you have any familiarity with the state of Illinois, uh, Chicago's at the northern end and Carbondale's at the southern end. 
And so a lot of times people disrespect us when we come from Southern Illinois. And I had to fight, scrap, uh, you know, I had to out-talk uh, the prettier ladies uh, away from my teammates. Uh, I've always had a gift of gab. Um, but, you know, the struggles were really tough because as a freshman, you're looking for acceptance. You're looking for people to accept you for who you are. And that was a little tough at the beginning. But when I started busting tail on the court and I started, you know, showing them that I knew what the coach wanted. You know, my dad gave me the blueprint going to college. And so every day I won every sprint. And I, you know, I get in these tussles and I could always fight because I've got an older brother that's six years old that used to use me as a punching bag. So I was never afraid to throw down and fight. I could fight. And so I went and picked the toughest dude, Ken Norman, who played in the NBA a long time. If you remember Ken Snake Norman, he was built like um, Adonis, the, the Greek goddess. I mean, oh, yeah. he was huge. And I picked him out, and I had a fight with him. And the rest of that, the rest of it was history. And so you know, I, had, I had to fight for my acceptance, and I had to go, go at it a hard way. But I wouldn't change a bit of it because it – it really set me up for a really good career at Illinois. And, and that's great because, um, you know, when I look back on my basketball struggles, you know, there was a lot of success, started playing the game at the age of eight. And uh, I was always the leading scorer, you know, coming up. And sometime around my sophomore year, you know, I was playing public school and there was a log jam of talent. So I, I made the, the varsity team my sophomore year. Um, but back in that day, uh, you had to wait your turn. So what I didn't realize is a lot of the players that were seniors were just going to play right away no matter what. And the juniors were next in line, and I was a sophomore. So AAU, I'm playing 17U. I'm doing great. I'm one of the leading scorers on my team again. Um, I end up playing both varsity and JV as a sophomore, won a JV championship. And now it's my junior year, you know. And the ju my junior year was probably the most talent that we ever had in the program. And um, at that point in time, I was told to wait my turn. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be a Division One player. You know, I've been a leading scorer my whole life. I just finished average of 20 of JV. I would have averaged 20 of varsity if you'd played me. And um, I was just stuck in, into my feelings. And, um, you know, looking back on it, I realized that, you know, even though I may have been a Division One player, there are Division Two players that were ahead of me, you know. And as a coach, uh, his thing was to get as many basketball players college, college scholarships as all of us agree with, you mm -hmm. know. So just looking in hindsight, obviously nowadays you can just transfer. And, and sometimes it's good for a kid to transfer. Sometimes it's just too much talent on one team. And you need to go somewhere else. But through that time, I think the lesson was um, my mother and I, we bonded like no other because she always had my back. And um, through that tough period of time where I had to wait my turn, you know, every now and then I would start, but, you know, come off the bench and, and just, you know, watching guys that I felt I was better than play, um, our relationship developed to that next level because I was told to keep on putting in the work. And she was, the, was my agent, so to speak, you know, going to bat for me and, and letting the coaches um, know or, or explain the reasons why, you know, I wasn't getting the opportunity I was getting. So, uh, those are some of my struggles in basketball, and to this day, you know, I mean, that's one of my, my philosophies, just work until. Um, God first, work until. You, you work until you complete the task, and that means, you know, installing, you know, determination, will, no matter the outcome or the results. You're just working until you fall in love with that process. Um, Got a question like, for you. Go ahead. So when, when that was going on, it's a junior, junior, pretty quote-unquote late in the game. 
my freshman year in college, my mom and grandmother drove two hours to see me sit the bench, then two hours back to go home. My attitude was terrible for the most part. Yeah. They had to deal with that. So what was your attitude like while you were sitting when you felt like you should be playing? Well, actually, um, that's actually a, a good a prelude because my freshman year of college, you figure my junior year, I didn't play as much as, as I wanted to. It's a public school team, log jam, jam of talent. We're killing everyone. We did, we, I think we went like 22 and 0. I mean, it was just a joke. Wow. I mean, every team we, we were playing. And a lot of times, like some people want to play on the best teams, but in those situations, you, you're not going to get the opportunity because you're just playing a small role. Um, during that time, and I think just to, uh, you, your question was, how did I deal with sitting on the bench? Mycin? Right, right. Well, I didn't handle it well at all. I mean, I was, I was just going around practice, and I didn't listen to the coach, you know, when he would say certain stuff. Um, I just did what I wanted to do. Um, but I didn't have a bad attitude about it. I, I had the attitude like the second team was going to kill the first team every time, you know? So it's like, this is my team, you know? You coach, that's your team, which is the first team, and we're going to kill them every time. And a lot of times we got the best of them, you know, almost every time. And, and that was my way of saying that, you know, maybe you need to look at some of us as well. But um, in that situation, man, I mean, I understand what the coaches was doing now. You know, he wanted guys to get scholarships. And, and even though they may not have been Division One or whatever, they did get scholarships. And they wouldn't have got that if I'd have played over them. Now, fast forward my freshman year, University of Buffalo, um, I got into a situation where, you know, sometimes you may have an assistant coach that just doesn't like you for whatever reason. You may have a, a bad practice, a bad confrontation with them because, you know, you always get assistance. And um, I was sitting the bench for a while, even though during the year I was probably one of the highest scorers. I scored 16 points the second game of the season versus Cornell and things of that nature. But um, I had the attitude, like you said, my mother would drive five hours from New Jersey all the way to Buffalo just to see me play. And, and I just had to become a contract killer. You know, you know, kind of like a field goal kicker. You know, you, you just wait on the sideline, you stretch on the bench, and it's like, oh, you're going to call my name, you call my name. If you're not, then we're just going to move on. But I think that that experience in high school is what, what prepped me to just become that contract killer. And I remember we played against uh, Central Michigan one night against uh, Chris Weber. He had two little brothers. They played against uh, Central Michigan. And sure enough, we got down early about 12, 12 to 2. And you know what the coach starts thinking when that happens. Like, oh, I'm going straight to the bench. So they went straight to me. Uh, long story short, I, I scored about 16 points in, in three, no, five minutes. Ended up with about 26 points to higher the year. And, um, you know, that was that. You know, I was able to take that with me and use that as a uh, tape to actually get another opportunity, which you guys know became North Florida, you know. You know what, that, I, I want to interject. That's a great point because we just saw this in the NBA playoffs with Rodney Hood where he's with the Cleveland Cavaliers, he's been traded from Utah Jazz, hasn't found his niche, was asked to come into the game uh, in game four when the Cleveland Cavaliers were blowing out the Raptors. He refused to go in the game. So this is something that is prevalent throughout basketball, whether it's high school, college, or pros. And there's a fine balance, I think, guys, that you would agree with, that coaches want guys that want to play. You don't want guys being happy sitting on the bench. But you also have to figure out a way to stay engaged, become a contract killer like you did, Karan, or, you know, just find a way to stay relevant and stay ready because there's, there's injuries, foul trouble, whatnot. But it's interesting. I just want to throw that little bit in there about Rodney Hood 
and his uh, not wanting to go into the game late against the Toronto Raptors. And I think the operative word, uh, once you get into the workforce, is being a professional. Mm. And, and that usually means that no matter what you're going through at home or your situation, when you, when you put on that hard hat or you clock in, you have to do your job, right. you know. And, um, and I think that that's one of the lessons for that, especially in the NBA. You know, you, I mean, you have a lot of players that maybe have not gone through that adversity. You know, they've always been that guy, especially if they, they've gone one and done or, or, or they left early. You know, they're expecting success right away, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, Myson, can, can you give me an example of, of, of how your experiences through basketball has helped you as a professional now in, in what you're doing? For sure. It, I'll say the qualities is, is grind, like you say, work until, work ethic, and learning how to – being a point guard, I had to learn how to talk to guys differently. I had to learn how to get the best out of them, how to hit them in their spots. So, one, how to be on a team. But the main thing, I think, is learning how to have an even kill when things are good, when things are bad, when you lose two games on the road, when you have a great game but your coach is still mad because you didn't really play well. So learning how to fall in love with the power of the process over the reward of results and staying to same with it every single day, no matter what that is. And right now it's in business. So still trying to compete is a little bit different in business because you don't see the competitors every single day. Basketball, you can see guys every day you go against in practice. So um, once you start hitting a certain level, I'm realizing people start to try to throw, throw spears at you. And, and it's kind of a, good thing because you can see where the competitors are and that that drives me I'm sure it drives you guys to being competitors like you are yeah Steven yeah I think for for me I, I was a point guard similar to Myson, and um the thing that I maybe was born with is I'm a leader uh because I'll, I'll get in cats behinds uh, all day because I hate to lose I mean I used to cry in high school when we lost that's why we didn't lose very much because I'll make my teammates lives miserable uh, because if we're going, if we're going to suit up, we're going to play, we're going to win. And I kind of take that uh, on on the TV side and broadcasting, because I want to be the, the the most prepared. Uh, I want to be able to say what comes to mind without worrying about ruffling feathers. I think I've earned that reputation as a guy that speaks his mind. I'm I'm not necessarily uh, politically correct, uh, but I will speak my mind because that comes from that leadership mode that I developed from basketball. And, you know, um, I'm not here to be liked. I'm just here to be respected. And so uh, that's kind of what I picked up from basketball. What about you, Karan? Yeah, I think that um, obviously the work ethic, we touched on that a little bit earlier, but also uh, sales. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from the time I was eight, I was always the leading scorer. And, uh, and in order to, to do that, you need your teammates. You need guys to set screens. You, you need a point guard that's just going to look out for you. So the communication aspect, um, being able to communicate with guys from different backgrounds, uh, figuring out what makes them go, what gets them going, and then just selling a group of guys that, that you should be shooting the ball all the time. I mean, <laughs> that's, the, I mean that, that's tough. You know, everybody wants to be that guy. But, but I found different tactics and ways of doing it. Um, obviously, it gets harder the higher level you go, uh, especially in college, you know, when, when there, there's always someone writing about you and, and what you're doing. And um, uh, case in point, I remember when, you know, coach, uh, we lost a game and the coach went to the, to the newspaper and said that we need some of the guys to help out Perron. And I said, oh, my gosh, coach, you're you just killing me. You know, because I was already captain. I'm already leading the score. 
And now I got to hear these rumblings like, oh, help him. Help him do what? Shoot more? I'm already, I'm already not getting the ball, you know? So, but um, because, because I was a, a good guy and um, I actually was able to relate to everyone on the team, you know, even the guys, like one of my networking models is um, you don't have to like them, but they have to love you. Hmm. And I got that from being the captain on the team because, you know, the captain on the team is actually the guy that keeps the team together, as you guys know. It's not always the coach, especially on the, on the college level where a lot of those guys are removed, you know, from the day-to-day stuff. Um, is you, you're the guy in the locker room. You know, you're the guy keeping these guys together. And it's, you have to have a, a good salesmanship about yourself. And I was able to take that and those lessons and, and, and bring them into the business world, you know, when I became a professional and had to get different jobs and stuff like that. I was able to find what makes people go and um, able to sell. So. I think that's one of the things that, that I took from it. Um, just segueing into something I said earlier about the relationship between myself and my mother, um, I think that uh, something that we have to talk about is, is, is parents. And parents, as it relates to uh, parents of student athletes, um, you know, you always have, I think uh, Frank Martin had, had something on, on YouTube that, that was pretty good about how he deals with his son, how he doesn't get involved and yell at the coach and, and say it's the, his fault and this and that and how he kind of sits back and let things play out. Um, there's two aspects on uh, two, two of this question that I'm going to give you first, um, Myson. Um, one aspect is going to be from the point of view of someone that played before. Sometimes, you know, it can be hard as a coach or a trainer to, to get information to somebody that played the game before uh, because they may think they know it all or they may be trying to live through their kid. You know, so he could have stopped playing in middle school. He could stop playing in high school, whatever he stopped playing. Or he could be a great player that's pushing the heck out of his kid. Um, what do you have to say um, to, to parents that are, I would say, helicopter parents that are living through, through their kid? Like, what, what advice would you give them? Coming, coming from a, a, the training aspect, I see it often, more often than I probably reflect on. I'll just tell the parent, honestly, you know, he's gotten a scholarship offer. I think he's complacent. You know, I'll always be the one to try to be the voice of the parent on the court to see the response. But if the response is not received well, then I think it's my job to decipher is the kid complacent? Is he already arrived, quote unquote? Or is this something that he just needs to be pushed? He needs some accountability. But for, for those parents, the helicopter parents, one, there, there's a few different types of helicopters. There's one where they, they'll tell you they think they know more than you do. And it's interesting because, you know, I don't give parenting advice. I don't tell the parents how to raise or rear their kid. So it's, it's funny sometimes when I have unsolicited advice from parents on how to train theirs. So uh, I think that there's a lot of different cases with it. And to tell the helicopter parents, you know, unsolicited advice is sometimes iffy. But if you work with someone else to be that voice on the court, I think things are usually a little bit better. And I agree with everything Frank Martin said too. Okay. Steven. Yeah, I think um, for helicopter parents, um, it's very difficult. Uh, I know that it was really hard when I, when my oldest son played high school basketball and I wouldn't necessarily talk to the coaches or anything, but I was always trying to yell encouragement to he and his teammates and not to the point where, I'm in the stands and like, ah, oh, you know, this, that. I try to stay as positive as possible, but it was very difficult. And that, 
relationship with a parent and their child. They want so much for their child that they get blinded a lot of times, in my opinion. And I think that parents are very, um, they're not very knowledgeable about this process. And I, you know, that's a whole nother story that we can get into at another time. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about that's the part two, the parent that hasn't played the game. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think that, you know, with parents, um, when you entrust your child with Mycin or Quran, they've been doing this. And so it, it's, it's almost an, an imperative that you just take your hands off and relax. It's not a do or die situation. I know these parents have invested money. I know they've got big dreams for their kids. Their kids say they want something and then they go into court and they half-ass sometimes and it, it drives parents crazy. I, I know I'm one, yeah. uh, but I just think it's, it's a very delicate balance. And the more that parents, if you're going to invest in the process, let the process work itself out. And that's, that's the best I can, I can tell parents because again, this is a whole nother series of shows that we can do on this subject. Yeah, and, and the part two, um, obviously we talked about the helicopter parent that maybe played the game before. What about the parent that never played the game before, but yet they're in a situation where they have this young student athlete that's very good. And for the life of me, I do not understand why parents compete. I get why the kid competes, you know, Johnny and Nick. Okay, both of them are in the same grade or, or both of them are, are competing against each other. But I don't see why a parent should take that same attitude with the opposite player's parent because you need to share information. And, and the thing that really, really gets me is when a parent actually competes with a kid that's older because they, they think their kid's going to be better than him. Mm -hmm. So this kid is already going to college. He's already going through the, the process. And you don't want to ask that parent question because you're next up, you know? So for me, I, it, it, just, it just kills me because I feel like people lose out. Um, kids end up taking their SAT a little bit later than they're supposed to. Mm. Um, um, one of the things I always say is that you need to go on as many unofficial visits as possible. Because once you go through the process, you realize that, yeah, the offers are nice on the internet, but the, the, the true offer is during their official visit because the coaches have a board. They may have five point guards on the board. And the way they prioritize those is the official visit. We're going to give Steven the first visit because that's the first right of refusal. Then mm -hmm. we get Bison coming in after. But what they don't know is that when Steven's visiting, um, they're going to tell Steven that Bison is coming next week. And if you don't take this opportunity right now, it may not be here. And if right. you think about that, that's 100% correct, you know? So a lot of people you'll see, they'll take one or two visits, and sometimes one, and that's it, because of that, that pressure, that inherent pressure. So I, I, I encourage parents all the time, get on the road. Once you get that, that offer, that internet offer or whatever, and that coach says he likes you, and that school's within, you know, three to four hours, get on the road and see what it's like. But I think that there's a bottleneck in the exchange of information as it pertains to parents, especially the ones that didn't play the game and have no idea of the process. The only thing they can relate is the workplace, which basketball is a lot different in, in some instances. Uh, uh, Myson, what's your take on that and the bottleneck of information? Uh, because we've been doing this for so long, this game of basketball, the process should, should be the easiest thing to pass on. There's so many college basketball players and so many parents and with multiple kids. 
you have one that went to college and another one that's going to go to college. So, so Myson, what, what's your uh, take on this bottleneck of information? And what are some of the things that you like to impart to parents as far as the process and information? I think you hit on a lot right there. Due diligence is one thing. I mean, there, there is information that's out there too. You go to the NCAA website, you can find a lot of this. Uh, like I agree with you wholeheartedly on the, on the official visits because you can get that, that internet offer and then go to the school and realize, oh, I'm not NCAA qualified. Oh, I am NCAA qualified, but I don't meet the requirements for the actual school's admission process. So there's a lot that goes on that people just don't know, but I think it starts with the due diligence of the parent and researching on the NCAA website. And like you said, swallowing the ego and asking that parent who has been through the process and saving who knows months, years on the entire process. Um, and for the more advanced, just something that comes to mind is the parents who are on social media and who know certain colleges that the kids already express interest in, why not follow the coaches? Why not begin to just develop that relationship over a course of a few years for the realistic level that the kid can probably play at? But there's a lot of things that can be done, um, but it starts with the due diligence of the parent, in my opinion. Stephen? So I would tell parents, shelve your ego and allow your kid to develop and ask as many questions as possible to the point where people get tired of you asking questions because that's the only way you can learn. Yeah, and that's, that's just a prime example of um, just perspective as well. Uh, whenever you have an, an area, like for instance, I'm in the DMV area, a um, place called PG County, which is probably the number one in the world for basketball right now. Um, when I say over 60 guys probably play college basketball just in this one area alone, every single year, every class. And the reason why that is, is because there is synergy, you know, amongst guys in PG County in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that synergy, uh, you get a lot of college coaches. So everyone wants to go to, you know, no one wants to go to a one-off. You know, everyone wants to, to go to a grocery store when you shop. You don't want to go to 7-Eleven. You don't want to go here. You want to go to one place and shop. So whenever you get that bickering and fighting, especially among parents, all you're doing is dividing your area. That's all you're doing. And there are people, like you said, there are people coming up behind you that, that want to, that can utilize this information and also just the exposure that you're giving to the area. You know, imagine those two kids did go play together in Illinois, what that would do for the state, you know? So it's, it's just something that um, I think that we all need to work on. And I think that parents uh, need to view this as, as a way just to get information and, and promote each other, you know, promote each other and, and continue to, to excel. So guys, great episode. Uh, I think we touched on a lot of um, um, topics and sources. Uh, any, any other questions, Myson? Any other questions you, you have for the, for the podcast? Uh, no, no questions right now besides, you know, curious to know what the audience would like to, to hear, what topics uh, for us to, to touch on. But other than that, no, no questions. Yeah. Anything, Stephen? No, I just, I just would encourage parents because I know there's going to be some people watching. Uh, just get out of the way. Uh, if you, if you've entrusted your kids to Mycin or Karan or or anybody, any other trainer worth their weight and gold, let them do their job and just stay out of the way because parents wouldn't want someone coming to their job trying to tell them how to do their job that they've been doing and become professional at. So don't use, utilize that when your child is trying to develop. Well, there you go. Great episode, guys. As always, it's the Ball Rock, Ball Rock Pill Podcast. 
subscribe on iTunes and Android. Till next time, God first, working till. Peace.